bullshit is everywhere. All right, we don't have time for that. Welcome back to Bullshit Filter the News, uh, episode 33, uh, Papa Bear. How are you today? Yeah. Um, I'm beginning to panic, but other than that, I'm fine. Oh, you're beginning to panic about what exactly? Oh, you know, I mean, I think we are we are Venezuela's number one oil customer, um, if I have that right. So Trump is doing trade wars, messing up everybody's livelihood, and now we might have less oil prices might shoot up at the pump. You know, just just the very the very foundation of American society. But other than that, I'm sure everything is fine. Everything's fine. So um, Ray's obviously given it away. Today on the news show, we are going to talk about Venezuela and only Venezuela. And in fact, not just today. I think I have about three hours worth of notes uh, right. that Going we will get through at some point over the course right. of the next uh, couple of weeks on the Venezuela situation, which no doubt will be fluid. Um, and listen, I've been meaning to talk about Venezuela for quite a long time on the series um, mm-hmm. because I've been paying a passing amount of interest to it over the last 10 years. Uh, look, I don't know it as well as I know some other things. Not that I know anything about anything, quite honestly. <laughs> but, you know, I've got a ton of notes. You know, the way I yeah. work, you know, I'll read stuff. I don't know if you know this, but I everything I know, Ray, I get from reading things. I know it's reading. a source of great really? embarrassment to me, yeah. that and the size of my and penis. Shame. But, yeah, uh, and, and the things that you made me do in Vegas. But, uh, I read stuff and then I file it away. I got a big file. It's right. in Evernote. It's like fourteen thousand notes of things in Evernote, and wow. you know uh, I file stuff away. And I go, one of these days, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to drill into that and try and get my head around in more detail. So obviously, the Venezuela situation is probably an opportunity to do that a little bit. We're not going to do. 25 episodes, but we'll do a couple. We'll do a couple. It's not Yalta. Come on. By the way, before I get started, I want to thank the people um, who have recently upgraded uh, Mm -hmm. as per my uh, shout out uh, for this show. People have upgraded their accounts from bronze to silver and above, from free uh, to silver and above to support us in our work. And, And thank you. We appreciate that. Thank you. So as I'm sure you're all aware, uh, well, maybe not all of you. Um, Christy said to me on the weekend, what are you working on? I said, well, the situation in Venezuela. And she said, what? And I said, right. Um, yeah, but she, delib- she deliberately doesn't read the news because she finds it depressing. Um, fair enough. But as yeah. a lot of you will know, um, in the last week, um, we're recording this, by the way, on the 27th of January in the United States, 28th of January, mm-hmm. 2019 in Australia. In the last week um, of January 2019, um, a chap, a chappy chap chap in Venezuela by the name of Juan Guaido uh, effectively was sworn in as interim president of Venezuela, despite the fact that the actual president, Nicolas Maduro, um, won an election last year and was sworn in for his new term uh, last week. Um, Quick question. Mm, Quick question. Who, mm. who declared um, Guaido to be president? Well, yeah, it's a good question. My understanding of it is it was kind of the the it's it's under the National Assembly and the Constitution. Um, mm-hmm. He can be sworn in by the National Assembly. 
Right. Uh, what's your understanding? Yeah, um, Articles 233 and 333 of Venezuela's Constitution, it says that if there is no president, the um, head of the National Assembly, which is Guaido, um, w- can take over or can be acting president. And, and, and you're absolutely right, because technically there is a president, um, uh, Maduro, but but in, in other ways, you know, was the erection uh, erection. I, I am so sorry for saying erection three times. Election <laughs> rigged. <laughs> was it rigged? Um, because as we're going to get into, there was a boycott. So this this might be a valuable lesson about people sitting home and not voting. But the point is, they, they're they're saying that they're the the erection. The I did it again. The election is unusual, and therefore he is not the president. Therefore Guaido should be able to step in per the constitution. So they one one person has an election on his side, the other person has a constitution on his side, and now we have to see what happens. And within minutes of Guaido declaring that he was the new president, um, Trump uh, came out and publicly endorsed him. Now, uh, as did many other countries eventually, and and news has come out since then um, that Guaido uh, had been in discussions with the US government, with Mike Pence, I think, in the days leading up to him declaring this. So it was all pre-planned, as you would expect. But of course, the big debate that's going on all over the uh, internets right now um, is whether or not this is an example of the US... Uh, affecting regime change or supporting Mm -hmm. uh, behind the scenes uh, regime change in Venezuela, something that, frankly, they've wanted to do for 20 years. Or if this is, no, this is is completely legitimate, Uh, this is a Venezuelan internal affair and the U.S. are just doing the right thing by supporting uh, the overthrow of a brutal dictator, Nicolas Maduro, as he's often portrayed um, in the U.S. media. So... um, you know, I, I think we need to break this down, Ray, and try and drill down and try and figure out. It's quite difficult, but we'll do our best to try and figure out what's going on. Right. Now, this guy, uh, Guaido, uh, declaring he's actually the president now and being supported by the US, it's kind of like Nancy Pelosi just right. uh, <laughs> announcing that she's actually the president. You know what? That election yep. that we had, uh, nope. 2016, not really valid. Um, a lot, lot of people are marching in the streets. They're not happy right. with Trump. Uh, yeah. I'm declaring the presidency vacant. I'm now the president. And then China and Russia supporting her and saying, yeah, actually, <laughs> she makes a good yeah. case. Uh, we, right. we, didn't, we didn't like Trump, really. At the end of the day, we're Hail supporting him. Now, just an example, you know, an analogy of what this is uh, kind of going on. Now, of course, um, when Guaido did this and the US backed him, the actual president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, said he's breaking diplomatic relations with the United States again, um, gave them three days, I think, to get the uh, all of their diplomats the fuck out of the country. The US said, no, yeah. we're not going to do that because you're not the president, so we don't give a fuck what you think. Now... I'd love to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that I know the truth about what's going on. Mm -hmm. But I don't. Um, But neither does anyone else. (laughs) So, as usual, our dual mottos must be that of Rene Descartes, de omnibus dubitandum, Mm -hmm. which means what, Ray? I know nobody knows Latin better than you, Ray. (laughs) Uh, De omnibus dubitandum. 
Um, dooby 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 wah wah wah. No, I know the Cicero quote, but I, I don't know that one. What does that mean? Uh, one must doubt everything. Ah, when gotcha. Rene when Rene Descartes uh, started his philosophical investigation, right. he started with the basic premise: everything's up for grabs. I'm going to doubt everything. Smart. And then he concluded with the one thing that he could be sure of is, I think, therefore, I am. There right. is thinking going on, therefore, I must exist. So that's mm. that was the only thing he said he could be sure of. There is thinking, something must be doing the thinking, therefore, something exists. But anyway, right. de omnibus dubitandum, I think that's always a good motto. The other one, of course, as you indicated, Cicero's motto, qui bono. Who benefits? Right. Um, or queef bono. Um, <laughs> pussy farts are good. It's <laughs> the other version of that. But we'll go with, we'll just stick with queef bono. That'll be the next series. Right. For now. So let's try and break down the story and see we, where we end up, Right. Anything you want to say before I get started with a ranty McRant rant? Are you, are you talking about the current situation? Are you going back a little bit? Um, you know me, Ray. If you don't know me by now, you will never, ever, ever okay, know me. Okay, how about this? How about you? Well, before you, I go back, yes, yes. Um, I want to read this open letter signed by a bunch of people I respect, like Noam Chomsky and John Pilger. This came out yesterday. Over okay. 70 experts call for U.S. to stop interfering in Venezuela. The United States government must cease interfering in Venezuela's internal politics, especially for the purpose of overthrowing the country's government. Actions by the Trump administration and its allies in the hemisphere are almost certain to make the situation in Venezuela worse, leading to unnecessary human suffering, violence and instability. Venezuela's political polarization is not new. The country has long been divided along racial and socioeconomic lines. But the polarization has deepened in recent years. This is partly due to U.S. support for an opposition strategy aimed at removing the government of Nicolas Maduro through extra-electoral means. Mm. While the opposition has been divided on this strategy, U.S. support has backed hardline opposition sectors in their goal of ousting the Maduro government through often violent protests, a military coup d'etat, or other avenues that sidestep the ballot box. Under the Trump administration, aggressive rhetoric against the Venezuelan government has ratcheted up to a more extreme and threatening level, with Trump administration officials talking of military action and condemning Venezuela, along with Cuba and Nicaragua, as part of a troika of tyranny. Problems resulting from Venezuelan government policy have been worsened by U.S. economic sanctions, illegal under the Organization of American States and the United Nations, as well as U.S. law and other international treaties and conventions. These sanctions have cut off the means by which the Venezuelan government could escape from its economic recession, while causing a dramatic fall-off in oil production and worsening the economic crisis and causing many people to die because they can't get access to life-saving medicines. Meanwhile, mm. the US and other governments continue to blame the Venezuelan government solely for the economic damage, even that caused by the US sanctions. So 
that is a perspective that you probably won't see much of in the US media. Um, right. I don't even know how much this open letter is going to get covered by the US media. But but you're right. I mean, I've, I've been through CNN. I went through uh, Fox. I went through several different news sites, you know, just looking for backstory. And I did not hear about this letter. Well, the letter just came out 12 hours ago. So maybe Still. they're catching up. But it's the perspective that the letter provides as well right. that you're not going to find much discussion of in the U.S. media. Now, it's the, it's the fucking hypocrisy of the U.S. media and Democrats that get me here, first of all. Um, bitching about Russia interfering in American politics for the last two and a half years and then turning around and interfering in Venezuela and the stupid fucking Democrats I talked to on Facebook who, after the whole weapons of mass destruction disaster in Iraq, not to mention all of the other times the US media and government has lied to the people about the reasons why they're intervening. Remember the whole Iraqi soldiers are throwing babies out of humidity cribs uh, story. They still right. believe what they read in the media. The, the stupidity of this is absolutely breathtaking. You know, I end up in discussions, I've had four or five of these in the last few days with uh, mm -hmm. friends or people, connections on Facebook that are Democrats. And um, like they're just buying the US media's story lock, stock and barrel. No fucking analysis, no history. Right. Kind of reminds me, reminds me of, um, yeah. uh, what's his face? Um, Gore Vidal. He said, mm -hmm. uh, it's, the, it's the United States of amnesia, he called right. it. Um, <laughs> nice. Look, anyone who's been paying attention knows that Venezuela is pretty fucked. Um, mm -hmm. economically. Massive inflation, massive 1. unemployment. Yeah. 1.3 million what? Uh, inflation rate. That's what. That's currently what it is, is that. Wow. Yeah. Now, of course, those things, of course, lead to massive socioeconomic problems. There's crime, there's violence, which then lead to government crackdowns on crime and violence. And then people turn around and go, look at the government, they're violent. And they go, well, we're Cracking down on crime and violence. Oh, no, you, you're violent. Um, people fleeing the country. You know, they go, oh, look at all these people that leave. Well, no, of course they're fucking leaving. The country's fucked. Right. Everyone leaves I've, the country when it's fucked. <laughs> That's not I, I've, I've read for the last 10 years, I think it's 10 years, roughly 3 million people have left the country with everything that's going on. And you know, some of them have got to be the, it's, it's like a brain drain or a money drain that people that can afford to get out or the people that have something to offer other countries like the United States are getting the hell out of there. So again, that's it, like you said, it's just the breakdown of, of, of their culture and civilization. Yeah. And you're right. The, usually when people are fleeing a country like this, um, it's firstly the people with a lot of money who are getting out um, and secondly, it's the people that are poor trying to get to somewhere where they can actually get some money. Um, but yeah, so and no one, no one blames people for fleeing a country that's obviously fucked and probably isn't going to recover in the short term. Anyway, if you read most of the mainstream media in the US and, and people posting shit on Facebook, that's the whole mm -hmm. story. Oh, uh, Maduro... Uh, communist fuck the country and uh now you know it's it's all a shit heap um well, you know it, that, that's it end of story um but you're right that is the end of the story but if you read anything like that or hear anything like that the first thing you should think about if you've listened to our shows enough is well that's the end but what's the beginning of and the middle of the story don't just tell me the last five minutes of the story. That's kind of like saying, 
Well, in 1946, uh, the uh, Allies hung some nice German boys in Nuremberg. I mean, you've got to have some background for that story right. to make sense, right? Yeah. But this okay. is the way, this is the United States of amnesia. Like, the media doesn't talk about the backstory. And, neither, and so most people don't understand the backstory. And you should be inherently skeptical of any politician or journalist or person on Facebook who is not providing some backstory to this when they're reporting it. But of course, that's where we come in. Right. Now, you can. I was going to say just real quick, just the American, we all know the American attention span, just like all the other countries in the West. I mean, it isn't very much, but you can't use that as an excuse to say, oh, if I start talking about the backstory, then people are going to turn the channel or they're going to turn it off. No, I think they would be genuinely interested. I think they, like you were saying, they purposefully are coming um, to, to get you to think a certain way to point you in a certain direction. And so, you know, whoever their bosses are, you're, you're going to support them. So you're absolutely right. There are, there are no news agencies anymore, hardly that aren't trying to get you to go some, you know, go in a certain direction. Everybody does it. Let's just be honest about it. Yeah, people, you know, if they've listened to us enough, they'll know how it works. You know, your, your, yeah. your media in the U.S. is pretty much owned by corporations um, or rich people like Jeff Bezos and uh, Rupert Murdoch, Jeff Bezos, and a bunch of wealthy corporations run by millionaire executives. Um, and they are there to support the U.S. system. And if their employees, the journalists and the editors and, and the producers, don't get on board with that, then they get fired. That's yeah. basically the way the system works. So you'll find that there is an amazing consistency in the reporting. This is what Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky explained in their book, uh, Manufacturing uh, Consent, uh, in the 80s, mid-80s. That's how you manufacture the consent of the people is you just uh, make sure that the people telling them the stories all are on board. Anyway, you can't understand what's happening in Venezuela today without understanding a bit of the history and the geography because the geography plays a big role. Now, -hmm. the first thing that you need to understand uh, is that Venezuela sits on the world's largest oil reserves. Yeah. And no, you didn't mishear me. The world's largest, bigger than Saudi Arabia. Wow. It's also sitting on enough uh, oil sands that uh, just that deposit alone is supposedly equal to the world's entire reserves of conventional oil. Good God. Yeah. Why aren't we kissing their ass more? Because Sorry, go ahead. Well, Sorry. we'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> so the vast majority of the last century of Venezuela's history has to do with these oil reserves. So mm-hmm. I'm going to run very quickly through this backstory, um, Ray, if that's okay with you, because I want to get up to the late 90s when Hugo Chavez uh, appears on the scene, because that's when it all started to um, become a problem for the United States. All right. So... In 1899, Venezuela was taken over by a military coup led by uh, Cipriano Castro and Juan Vicente Gomez. And then in 1908, Gomez overthrew Castro, and then oil was discovered uh, just after World War I. And Venezuela very quickly went from being your typical, very poor Latin American country to incredibly rich. 
And Gomez, Juan Vicente Gomez, uh, who was basically a classic military dictator, Cudillo, as they call them in uh, Latin America, did very well out of it, as did a very small group of people who got very, very rich, and most people stayed very, very poor. Right. That's the way these sorts of things usually work. Um, the wealth doesn't get spread around a lot. You end up with a lot of rich people. The rich people control the the the, the corporations, the 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 media, the the telephony networks, uh, all these sorts of things, uh, and so therefore they tend to be able to control the political process as well. Most people mm-hmm. are poor, uneducated, no health care, living in poverty. Now, Gomez died in 1935, but the system that he had run for 20, 30, well, 35 years, really, um, continued for another 10 years until 1945, end of World War II. There was another coup, this guy, this time led by Betancourt and then a guy called Galagos. But mm-hmm. in 1947, Venezuela had their first free elections. Ooh. Okay. But it only lasted a year and there was another military coup. This time it's led by a triumvirate, something mm. that something that we love, good old triumvirate, <laughs> led by three guys, Baez, Chalbo, and a guy called Perez Jimenez. Now mm-hmm. Jimenez ended up as president. But surprisingly, despite all of the oil money, the country ended up heavily in debt due to a number of factors, but corruption being a big one of them. Debt grew more than 25 times in just five years when Jimenez was uh, president in the late 40s into the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, 25 times. How can that well, possibly happen in an oil-rich country? A lot, of, lot yeah. of things going wrong. Right. You were going to say something? No, I was just going to say, yeah, if you're an oil-rich country and you're that much in debt, obviously the contracts that were assigned or, or whatever with the, the other Western powers or with oil companies obviously were skewed heavily in one one direction. And so, again, this, this country that has this gold mine um, is still getting shafted either by uh, corporations and or Western powers. Just sad, but like you said, that happens all the time. Yeah, well, what tends to happen, and this is certainly the case in Venezuela, as it's been the case in lots of countries in the Middle East. Um, Okay, so you're a poor country, oil gets discovered, what happens next? Uh, International foreign oil companies turn up on your doorstep and go, oh, we can help you get that oil. You you don't know how the fuck to get the oil out the ground. What What have you ever done? We'll help you get the oil out of the ground. Deal? Deal. And we'll pay you, you know, five cents on the dollar for um, all of the oil that we get out. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Mr. Dictator, um, you know, you, you get to keep a cent of that. And so we pull out a billion dollars, you'll be a very rich man. And he goes, yeah, it sounds good to me. Um, and so the oil companies take the vast majority uh, of the revenue. You know, we saw, you know, uh, uh, in the early 50s, I've talked about this a thousand times on various shows, in Iran, uh, the, the democratically elected president of Iran at the time, Mossadegh, wanted to renegotiate with the British the oil concessions that they had struck with a Shah mm-hmm. 50, 60 years earlier, um, where I think I think literally the, the um, uh, Iranians were getting like cents on the dollar of the right. oil riches that were being taken out of their country. And he tried to negotiate with the British. The British said, get fucked. And so he right. nationalized the oil interests. And then Churchill... 
Mr. Democracy himself, along with uh, the CIA, um, mm. overthrew uh, Mossadegh and reinstalled the Shah and, and blamed and said, oh, he's in, he's in league with the communists. We have to overthrow him. And they created riots and uh-huh. all that kind of stuff. So anyway... Um, the, the, the oil interests in Venezuela are mostly controlled by foreign entities, uh, keeping all of the money for themselves. Uh, a lot of other corruption as well. So Jimenez gets forced out in 1958. There's a massive, massive economic crisis hits Venezuela in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So, from, so from 50 years of extreme wealth, uh, not a lot of it trickling down, some, some work being done, but not a lot. Massive economic crisis. But the oil kept flowing, and they managed to pull through that. Uh, meanwhile, there's a lot of sort of revolutionary guerrilla armies uh, rising up, some of them supported by Fidel Castro. And then in the late 60s, a guy called Rafael Caldera took over. Now, mm-hmm. Caldera's an interesting guy, neither right nor left, sits somewhere in the middle, centrist, introduced the Christian Democracy Party to Venezuela. Um mm-hmm. Seems like a decent bloke for a Catholic. Um, I don't really have any bad stories to tell about Caldera. He offered amnesty to all of the guerrillas. Most of them took it. Right. Um, so they they started to get back on shape. Still, a, you know, handful of rich people, a lot of poor people. Country is prosperous if you're one of the minority. If you're one of the majority, still uh. not, not great. Uh, then in 1973, a guy called Carlos Perez becomes president. Um, now, this happens to coincide with the OPEC oil crisis in the Middle East. I don't, we've probably talked about this on, in our Syria series. I know we talked about it in the Cold War economics series. No, maybe it was this series, talking about Kissinger. Anyway, for people who haven't heard any of that and don't know what happened, basically in the mid-70s, um, sort of 1973, 74, 75, um, OPEC... The, mm-hmm. the, the oil-producing um, exporters, for the first time, really coordinated their efforts and drove the price of oil up. They cut production, uh. drove the price up. Uh, oil prices went soaring around the world. Petrol prices, uh, fuel prices, gas prices, whatever you call it, American gas prices, particularly in the U.S., massive economic crisis in the U.S. This is during the Nixon-Kissinger uh, uh, era. Um, and this is kind of where Kissinger negotiated a deal with the Saudis to basically say, who are obviously a major component of OPEC, so basically, listen, keep oil prices down and we will support you to the hilt with military affairs. So you as many fucking weapons as you want, protect you to the hilt, doesn't matter how corrupt you are, how many people you execute because you because they're like atheists. Um, right. We will support you to the fucking. Just don't invade Israel. That's the only thing we say. Don't don't touch Israel. Do anything else you want in the region. You got our full backing, and that's continued through every U.S. administration through to this very day. But anyway, during this time, oil prices exploded. Venezuela's income shot up through the roof. I'll take a breath. Do you want to jump in and comment on anything so far? Let me ask you: When you were doing your research, did you run across the uh, Punto Fijo? Pact, 1958. Uh, I did, but I didn't write it down in my notes. So why don't you uh, wax lyrical? Yeah, I, I, 
I just thought this was interesting, and I'm just going to do a high level. I'm not going to to step on your toes and stuff you're about to talk in the future. But as far as Hugo Chavez, who I'm sure we're going to go deep on um, in, in later episodes, you know, born in 1954, working class family. He was a career military officer. He's going to found in the early 1980s a class then uh, a class nine uh, revolutionary Bolivarian Bolivarian. I'm Bolo- not sure to say that. Fuck it, Bolivarian. Bolivarian movement in the early 1980s. And what basically what he was trying to do, and we'll go into all that later, but he was trying to take on the Punto Fito Pact, which was formed in 1958 by the three main political parties of the country. And and I didn't really get a chance to read deep, but from, from what I can tell, their, their main goals at first seemed pretty respectable. What they would do is they would respect the 1958 presidential elections. They would uh, try make sure they stayed together and not let any single party dominate the country. They would work together to fight any dictator who tried to rise up through the military. And they agreed to share the wealth that's coming from the oil, especially when the prices go up. And I think for a while that Things were going along, you know, relatively smoothly. It was, it was, it was a pretty stable time, especially, especially when a lot of money is coming in. But then um, bad things start happening. The Constitution gets changed in the 1960s, where the president is given a whole bunch of powers over the military, the the ability to tax, the tariffs. Um, that when it comes to the oil, and as we're going to see in the 1980s, the prices drop, and so the people who are already struggling, they're not benefiting directly as much as the, the small few around the presidents. Um, they start, um, wanting different parties. They start wanting different representatives. And what these three main parties do is that they make sure no other party can rise. They start to use force, uh, to keep the people down, to make sure no, no, um, um, popular you know, populists can come in and so it, it starts to get pretty ugly but by this time Chavez is who's growing up he's in the military he's like I'm going to do something about this yes it started out pretty well they had pretty decent goals but now they're just as corrupt as everybody else and so okay, that's okay. one of the things don't, we're going to see and I'm going to stop there I'm just going to say don't, don't, that's don't what jump he's too fighting. far ahead yeah okay no, well, I'm you, done you, you just jumped 25 years into the future man like calm down slow down slow your roll it's slowed yeah the the pact that you're talking about is the one I mentioned, the triumvirate between Paez, Chalbo, and Perez Jimenez. That was their sort of triumvirate, right? So according to, I talked about, I got up to like 70s, right? OPEC crisis, all prices shoot up through the roof, a lot of money flowing in. Now in Confessions of an Economic Hitman, John Perkins, who used to work as an EHM, as he calls it, an economic hitman, um, you know, he spent the 70s working for a Boston engineering slash strategic consulting firm, Chaz T. Main. It's not around anymore, but he was the chief economist for this firm, Chaz T. Main. As in that role, um, he claims he advised the World Bank, the United Nations, the IMF, US Treasury Department, Fortune 500 corporations, and countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. Basically, according to his book, the way it works is. You know, companies like his go in because they want to win all of this engineering work. They're kind of like the 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 recon team for the U.S. government. They go into these countries where there's a lot of money flowing in. They go, look, um, here's how it's going to work. You're going to give us all of these uh, these contracts so we can make mm-hmm. a lot of money. Uh, if you say no, we're going to overthrow your government and appoint someone else who will give us the contracts. Um, right. And if you don't believe me, look over my shoulder. You see that guy with the briefcase and the dark glasses on um, and a little earpiece? 
you know, that's it's gunboat diplomacy, right? This is according right. to him, right? Anyway, right. this is what he says happened in Venezuela um, in the 70s. During the 1973 OPEC oil embargo, petroleum prices skyrocketed and Venezuela's national budget quadrupled. The EHMs went to work. The international banks flooded the country with loans that paid for vast infrastructure and industrial projects and for the highest skyscrapers on the continent. Then, in the 1980s, the corporate-style EHMs arrived. It was an ideal opportunity for them to cut their fledgling teeth. The Venezuelan middle class had become sizable and provided a ripe market for a vast array of products, yet there was still a very large poor sector available to labour in the sweatshops and factories. Then oil prices crashed and Venezuela could not repay its debts. In 1989, the IMF imposed harsh austerity measures and pressured Caracas to support the corporatocracy in many other ways. Venezuelans reacted violently. Riots killed over 200 people. The illusion of oil as a bottomless source of support was shattered. Between 1978 and 2003, Venezuela's per capita income plummeted by over 40%. As poverty increased, resentment intensified. Polarization resulted with the middle class pitted against the poor. As so often occurs in countries whose economies depend on oil production, demographics radically shifted. The sinking economy took its toll on the middle class and many fell into the ranks of the <coughs> poor. Wow. So, yeah. you know, this is, again, something that you don't see get talked about often um, in the mainstream media. This is the kind of stuff you only learn from reading books. Um right that's the way these countries end up fucked. As soon as there's money coming in, uh, banks, engineering companies, uh, infrastructure companies from the US and other places, but you know a lot of them come from the US, jet in, uh, particularly in the 80s, we're talking Gordon Gecko, right? These guys fly right. in, they meet with the president and his uh, inner circle and they say, uh, listen, um, you know, you need to, you've got all this money. Congratulations. Well done. Pat him on the back. Um, you should start spending it. Yeah. It's like your people. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, um, <laughs> yeah, somebody, uh, 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 wins the lotto. Um, let's say right. they, they win a, they win a million dollars and all of a sudden everyone starts saying, yeah, you should buy, you know, a yeah. $10 million house, you can afford it. Yeah, you know, you'll you'll get more money somewhere along the way. Don't worry about it. You, you rack up yeah. massive the loans. Payments. You go buy go buy a couple of new cars and a big house. Yeah, you, and you think, oh, well, I've got enough money. I can make the payments. Because yeah. they'll tell you, that's the smart thing. Well, you don't want to pay cash. You've got cash, but you want to pay cash for any of this stuff. What you want to do is finance it all, yeah. Um, and then you just make payments on it. And, you know, you, with the amount of cash you've got, you can afford these payments forever. But, of course, then shit goes bad, <laughs> cash runs out, and you're left holding a bunch of debts. But you know that all these 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 the presidents and, and, and uh, the, his inner circle made out like fucking bandits during this process, kickbacks mm-hmm. and bribes and all of that kind of stuff, and saddled the country with enormous debts. Anyway, that's his perspective about what happened in the 70s and 80s. So by the late 80s and into the 90s, the country was fucked. But we'll get into that. Um, Before we get into that, I want to talk about the oil industry in Venezuela. 
Mm -hmm. So the oil industry uh, was nationalized in 1976, not Mm. by... Chavez, uh, not right. by Maduro, but in 1976 by Carlos Perez. Um, they f- took a n- number of entities together and formed Petróleos de Venezuela, the oil company of Venezuela, basically PDVSA. Mm. Now, PDVSA happens to be a major oil supplier to the U.S., uh, I think one of the top has been like one of the top three suppliers of oil to the U.S. for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1986, PDVSA bought Citgo, uh, big wow. uh, like petrol gas station uh, chain in the U.S. I think they've got a thousand gas stations and about twenty percent of the gasoline market in the United States. So that was the way nice. that they were selling. They're they sort of vertically integrated, right? And they go, okay, well, we'll we'll pull it out the ground and send it away to get refined because I don't don't think they had their their own refining capabilities. And and then, but then we'll get it back and then we'll sell it and we'll keep as much of the profit as possible. Right. Um, it's like Medici started out banking, buy some woolen cloth industry um, um, factories, and you know integrate and also uh, diversify to protect their riches. Exactly. Very smart. Now, PDVSA generally exports about 93% of its total hydrocarbon production. And mm-hmm. oil is about 90% of the country's income. Venezuela's 80 to 90%. Oh, my God. Um, so, and then 54% of their exports go to the United States and Canada. So right. if oil export is 90% of the country's income and half of it goes to the United States and Canada... Yeah, means their economy is very closely tied to the United States. So I was just yeah yeah, yeah. jump in. No, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this later. But given given all that you just said, and for their president to, I mean, because again, we need to clarify this. He's not saying all the American diplomats gave out. He is literally cutting all diplomatic ties with the United States. I mean, it, it's going to get ugly real quick. Even though it's going to hurt them, it's going to hurt wait, us wait. as well. Who are you? But, uh, we'll have, you we'll you're talking about that. Maduro? No, I, yeah, I'm talking about yeah, the current president. Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry. Why? Why? Because he's why? cut all diplomatic relations. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's try and stick no, to the I, timeline. I'm Stop just, jumping I'm around. Just saying, I will. I apologize. Do you want to talk about anything that happened in this period, the seventies, eighties? You got any notes on that? Um, just, just that when the um. The uh, you know the prices drop in the eighties, and the people are suffering. That's when Chavez is like, okay, we've got to do something about this, and he starts gathering people up to him. But we will get to that later. Oh, I'm about to get to that. I was just going to say that when the oil price collapsed in the eighties, obviously the economy mm-hmm. the economy collapsed, um, right. and they've already racked up massive debts. They can't pay their debts, as John Perkins explained. Oh. Again, this leads to as today massive amounts of crime, poverty, incredible amount of corruption. And then Carlos Perez wins a second term, and that, in 1992, is when Hugo Chavez uh, tried to overthrow the Perez government, not once, but twice. Right. Failed both times. Right. 
he goes to jail for two years. He, well, he's, he was meant to be in jail for longer than that, but he goes to jail. But he's pardoned after two years. But the point is, I mean, he and, and maybe I'm overstating this, and you can certainly tell me if I am. In a lot of ways, he kind of reminds me of, of Castro. Look, this is completely fucked up. This is corrupt. Someone has got to do something about it. Why can't it be myself? Yeah, and he. I don't want to. I don't want to paint. I don't want to paint him as a patriot. But I mean, I clearly think he's trying to do something. Well, why? Why don't you want to paint him as a patriot? He's trying to. Well, a patriot. Maybe that's not the right right word. Not a self-sacrificing person. He clearly loves his country. He clearly is concerned about his people, and so he decides to do something. You know, outside the law. He, treat, he attempts to do something outside the law to do somehow stop this corruption. Yeah, and um, he he goes to jail, as you say. Then Perez, the president, gets impeached for corruption in 1993. Um, He became the first Venezuelan president to be forced out of office by the Supreme Court, initially for the embezzlement of 250 million bolivars that had been sitting in a presidential discretionary fund. Then five years later, in 98, he was prosecuted again, uh, again on charges of embezzlement of public funds after secret joint bank accounts that he held with his mistress were discovered in New York. Yeah. Um, And what happened to uh, Carlos Perez? I imagine, uh, you know, he, he, he got the book thrown at him and did life, Ray. Um. I'm guessing no. <laughs> no, he ended up retiring in Miami um, with his with millions his and his mistress. Okay. Um, where, the, where the United States government said, yeah, have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you embezzled Welcome. hundreds of millions of dollars out of the economy? Well, that's all right. You, uh, Your people are suffering? Are you going to yeah. spend it here? Yeah. All good, son. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you gave us lots of oil concessions, so uh, right. it's good. Well done. Congratulations. Yeah. Put some of that in some of our election funds and you'll be fine. And then, of course, not surprisingly, he later becomes one of the most vehement opponents of Chavez, um, ah. the the guy who embezzled hundreds of millions of dollars, um, is an opponent of Chavez. Anyway, um, after he gets kicked out, Rafael Caldera, the Christian Democrat Catholic um, uh, sure. get, wins a second term. Fucking old. He's like 200 years old at this point, but he gets a second term. <laughs> he uh, pardons Chavez in 94, as you said. Mm-hmm. Chavez then ran for president in an election in 1998 and won. So he doesn't come yeah. to power through a military coup, right. despite the fact that he's a former guerrilla. He kind of does mm-hmm. the reverse of Castro. Castro tried to run for elections. And, uh, you know, the elections were um, uh, uh, annulled or whatever by uh, Batista. Then he became a revolutionary. Chavez started out as a revolutionary and then became a politician. (laughs) And he was president for the Uh next 15 years until he died uh, under rather mysterious circumstances in 2013. I think it's important for people to know you're right. So he founds the Fifth Republic Movement Party. He's elected in 1998. He's re-elected in 2000. He's re-elected in 2006. He's re-elected for the fourth time in, in 2012. And I don't 
I mean, I don't really have notes in front of me as far as if anybody thinks those elections were corrupt, but he seems to have been truly trying to help his people. But even though he's elected in 2012, like you said, by then or soon after he has cancer and he dies in March of 2013. Now, of course, I'm sure a lot of people, particularly Americans, are thinking, oh, elections, schmelections, they were all probably fraudulent, corrupt elections. Um, The Jimmy Carter's Carter Center, which, among other things, does election monitoring, monitored every one of those elections and said they were the most fair and free elections in the world. So. and his, um, what do you call it, uh, the margin by what he won was not slim. So one of them, I can't remember which election, one of them was he got like, uh, it was by 60%. So this guy, um, I think, even though he might not have been perfect, and we can go into that or not, he did make mistakes. He was trying for the people and they appreciated that. And they kept electing him uh, every time it came up. Yeah. Now... I mean, I guess you can argue that the Carter Center doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about, but, you know. They know more than we. So. I'm just saying that's what they, you know, that's what they what? said. If, if you want to poke holes in that, go right ahead. But here's an important thing to understand. So mm-hmm. why was there so much hatred uh, both in Venezuela and uh, in the United States towards Hugo Chavez? One thing to understand is that uh, he was the first... Uh, president of Venezuela to have African mm-hmm. and Indian heritage. He was a darky, Ray. He was a darky. Right. They'd always, yeah. they, all of their upper class are white. Right. And he he actually was referred to in a lot of um, Venezuelan media as a Miko Mono, a long-tailed monkey, or Miko oh. Mandante, ape commander in a lot of racist cartoons. Now, look, racism is a problem in in most parts of the world to varying degrees, not just in Venezuela. Um, You know, the United States has a massive racism problem. I think we all know that. Still today, uh, you know, one of, if not the most developed countries on the planet still has a huge racism problem. Um, and this is true, too, in Latin America. A lot of racism in Latin America. One of the things that Castro talked about a lot during his his uh, life was the problems that he faced in Cuba trying to get rid of racism and bias against homosexuals and a lot of, all these sorts of things. So it's a big problem, and it exists in Venezuela, too, and Chavez um, being of dark heritage, mixed African, Indian, and European heritage, um, you know, he, he, he was on a lot of racism from the white upper class elite. Let, let me ask you real quick. You mentioned one previous political party that was in charge. Um, as Chavez's um, political party was socialist, I'm sure that was certainly a part of it because it is 1998. The Cold War is still going on for a couple more years. I'm sure that he, he certainly drew the ire of the United States, even though the Cold War was coming to an end. Were, do you know if any of the previous parties that were in charge were socialists? I think they were Christian-dominated, but I don't know for that for sure. Yeah, they, they, weren't, they weren't really socialists before Chavez, mostly center-right, a lot of the parties mm. before them. I mean, out-and-out military dictatorships that were um, sure. you know, extreme on the right. Um, yeah. the, uh, Caldera was a bit more centrist. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, now he's the first socialist, and so right. 
Chavez gets into power 1999, um, and uh, yeah, he immediately starts attacking America as imperialists, um, allies the country with Fidel Castro, who's still alive at the time, um, and and also you know starts to build alliances with uh, the Soviet Union, Russia. Soviet Union's gone. Russia at the time, China. Um, starts to align the country with the non-aligned movement uh, because right. he he as a coming from the indigenous classes of um, Venezuela mm-hmm. uh, understood that the country like so many Latin American countries had been oppressed by American corporatocracy for at that stage, uh, you know, a good 70, 80 years. Um, just extracting wealth out, out of the country through oil uh, and keeping people poor, saddling the country with massive debts, then using the IMF to enact austerity to get those debts paid and leave the people in poverty. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, if, if you don't, if somebody listening to this doesn't believe that that's what America has done in Latin America over the last hundred or so years... I mean, fucking read a book, people. Like, oh god, seriously, it's not even up for debate. Like, it's this is right. Read, go read Tim Weiner's book on the history of the CIA. Then come back and talk to me if you it's like. Fucking don't even don't even talk to me if you don't believe that's uh, legitimate. But not only that, but one of the interviews I did, and I apologize, I can't remember the title. It was basically uh, the Americans used World War Two uh, to not only kick out any access influence in Central and South America, we then used. Um, our military and political and financial might to go in there and to and to grab up all the markets, literally, literally squeezing out um, local markets, lo- local entrepreneurs, that kind of stuff. So that certainly happened after World War Two. And I just want to mention one thing before you go on. You were saying that Chavez comes in, you know, he's obviously a dark, darker skin than everyone else. He's a socialist. He's aligning with Cuba and the Russians. He's pissing everybody off. But as far as his people are concerned, and I'm not going to go into detail, I'm not going to go too far forward. He takes the money from the oil cells. And you've mentioned this, and I can't remember which show, but you've mentioned this on other shows. When socialists come to power, some of the things they work on is education and gender equality. And that's exactly what he does. He implements social programs. He tries to make sure there's more food. He tries to have better and, and more housing. He focuses on health care and education. So some of this works, some of this doesn't. We can go into that or not. But the point is, he does make these very sincere attempts with the oil money that's been coming in that has been, you know, kept by the by the elites. He's actually spending it on the people, which is why he got reelected, you know, three times after the first election. Yeah, and I got a lot of data on okay. the social Sorry. programs that he ran later on. So he's president for 15 years, except for two days in 2002 when he was overthrown in a coup. Mm. Now, I want to do a little bit of background on this coup. So, Because okay. uh, coups in Venezuela obviously aren't a new thing. Um <laughs> But let's break down this coup. So he'd been president just for a couple of years when this first one happened. Now, it's important to understand some of the background behind this because it ties into what's going on with Maduro today. Now, Chavez was extremely vocal about the George W. Bush administration and their response to 9-11 and the reasons for the attack in the first place. One thing about Chavez, he was a bit like Trump 
uh, a bit like Fidel Castro, in that he loved he loved a microphone. He loved a television what? camera. He had his own TV show for years where he'd talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, Are you talking about Trump? No, I'm just joking. He just didn't joking. have Twitter. He, well, probably did towards the end of his uh, reign. But he, uh, he could talk and he loved... I mean, he famously got up at the UN, I think the day after George Bush had spoken. He got up at the UN and sniffed and went... Oh, the, I can still smell sulfur. The devil must have been here recently or something like that. This is the I fucking... At the UN, right? He, he didn't give a shit. He wore his military fatigues everywhere and he just... I he, got oil money, bitch. I, and he Sorry. just... Yeah, he just loved poking the Bush administration in the eye. He, he had a huge sense of humor and he just liked fucking with America, honestly. But after 9-11... Um, uh, uh, he called on the U.S. He, he called, sorry, he called the U.S. attacks on Afghanistan as fighting terrorism with terrorism. Said that's never going to work. Demanded an end to the slaughter of innocents. He held up photographs of children killed in American bombing attacks in Afghanistan. Said that their deaths had no justification, just as the attacks in New York did not either. Now, in response, the Bush administration withdrew their ambassador from Caracas. Uh, So, you know, big critic of the Bush administration. Um, By the way, uh, people may recall this as well. When Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, um, he was giving away free oil to the, the people who were suffering in New Orleans for oil lamps. So they had some heat and some light. Um, he was always, he had a, a whole setup where he would give um, free oil <laughs> when the Bush administration uh, was doing nothing. And I think this happened uh, right through the Obama administration as well. When tragedies would happen like this, um, Venezuelan government would step up and, and help out Americans. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so he's aligning himself with Cuba during this period in the whole non-aligned movement. And during the 2000s, thanks in part to Bush's wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, oil prices surged again. Um, So by Mm. the time Chavez comes into power, the economy, Venezuelan economy, was already fucked. People like to say, oh, you know, Chavez fucked the economy. No, 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 no. It was fucked before Chavez. It had been fucked for decades before, 15 years anyway, before Chavez came to power. Massively fucked. Mm -hmm. He inherited a fucked up economy. He inherited the fuck up. He didn't create it. He inherited it. Now, you can argue that maybe he should have done things differently. That's fine. But he didn't cause the problems. He inherited the problems. A bit like people say, oh, you know, Castro fucked up the country. Yeah, well, what was it like before Castro? It was terrible. Um, So uh, I think oil was $9 a barrel when Chavez took office. By 2008, it was $126 a barrel. And as he promised he would, as you indicated earlier, he began to pour money into social programs. Now, Mm -hmm. I've come across some people who say, oh, well, he's just a populist who was just buying votes by doing things for people. Well, (laughs) fucking (laughs) duh. Shit, Shit, Sherlock. Show me a politician who doesn't try to get elected by doing things for their constituents. Isn't right. that how, don't you know democracy? Don't you know <laughs> how? Don't you know love, Lisa? Don't you know how democracy works? 
you promise to do things for people, and if they elect you, you do right. them. Maybe if right. in some cases you do them. Um, usually, you promise the way it normally works. You promise to do things for people if you yeah. get elected. They vote for you, and you go, "Oh, sorry, yeah. can't can't do things that have now." Changed. I didn't realize. Right. I didn't realize before, but you know, my my bad. Sorry, mea culpa. Yeah. So. so he did. Um, he yeah. um, he started doing a massive amount of public spending, social welfare. He also started selling all the Cuba at discount rates. Again, that pissed off the Americans because Cuba's under yeah. economic sanctions and he's helping out Cuba, which is going to make it harder for them to get rid of Castro. Um, in return, Cuba sent doctors, thousands and thousands of doctors, to Venezuela because, you know, Cuba's got, like, more doctors than you've got right. fucking hickeys, um, goat hickeys. Um, so, uh, so that was a, that was a good deal. Then, then in 2002, um, half, nearly half the workers at the state oil company PDVSA went on strike. Mm. Um, and this is where the first coup attempt comes into play. How are we going for time? Are we nearly at an hour, but I'll keep going for a bit. So, um, it's kind of complicated. I'm going to I'm going to give you the high level as I understand it. Now they they went on strike claiming corruption uh, because Chavez was messing with the the administration of the PDVSA. Um, he was trying to bring it under greater state control. Like PDVSA, even though it was state owned and had been since 1976, it was pretty mm-hmm. autonomous, and ah. you know had deals still with foreign oil companies. Uh, the executives were making a ton of money. And Chavez had been demanding that they cut oil production in line with OPEC guidelines. So OPEC, uh, again, you know, uh, have these meetings and then they all say, okay, well, everyone's only going to produce this amount of oil this year because we want to keep the price at a certain level. You don't want to get too high. You don't want to get too cheap. It's like you know, the way the, the diamond industry is controlled, right? You um, supply and demand, let's just allow a certain amount of oil out there. But but PDVSA kept overproducing, up to a million barrels a day overproducing. Damn. Which is a mm-hmm. lot. Um, right. So I think they were supposed to be producing like 3 million, they were producing 4 million, or maybe it was 2 million to 3 million or something like that a day. Um, he wanted them to cut production, raise prices, increase oil revenues, and they refused. Ah. Um, now, at the time of his inauguration in 99, Venezuela was OPEC's biggest oil production quota evader. Oh, God. And he wanted to make them a quota enforcer, which he ended up doing. Right. But anyway, so he's interfering with them, uh, they feel, and they, they call a major strike. One of his other issues is that he believed that the management was pocketing too much money. The royalties right. that the PDVSA was supposed to pay to the state of Venezuela had fallen from 71% of gross earnings in 1981 to 39% oh, God. in 2000. So, oh you know, close to half. Massive. Right. Now, yes, oil prices had plummeted in that period of time. So their justification was, well, you know, we're making less money, so we need to keep more of it. Um, But he was saying, no, 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 you don't need that much. You have to give us more. And in 2001, he passed a law which cut foreign companies' share of the sale price from 84% to 70% 
and they had to pay royalties of 16.6% on heavy crude that came out of the Orinoco Basin, up from 1%. They were paying 1% royalties. He increased it to 16.6%. Right. And they were keeping 84% of the conventional oil. Uh, the, the the sale of it, right? And he wanted to cut it right. from 84 to 70%. They're still keeping 70%. Yeah, come on. Now, they freaked out. Okay, so the foreign oil companies freaked out at this. Uh, Exxon and ConocoPhillips actually rejected the deal and he kicked them out of the country. But mm-hmm. Chevron stayed. Um, but, of course, so this new law is signed and put into place and uh, he's telling the management they need to cut production, etc. So there's a massive strike, huge strike right. um, by, the, uh, uh, by the, the oil industry. Here's the thing. The strike wasn't organized by employees, like strikes mm-hmm. normally are, but by the employers. The management enforced the strike. Right. Because it was bad for them. Gotcha. You, you've mentioned like four powerful groups this guy has pissed off in the last two minutes. I'm surprised he's still alive. He's not. He's dead. Um, no, I mean at the time. <laughs> at yeah. the time. Yes. At the time. Yes. Yes. So then uh, around when all this is happening, the first coup attempt occurs on April 11th, 2002. Now, there'd been this two-day general strike that was called by the Business Federation and also by Venezuela's largest union, but that was corrupt and run by the, the business owners. On April 9th of 2002, mm-hmm. Um, now, the private media, uh, corporate media, uh, encouraged the strike out and out. Venezuela's four largest private television stations, uh, Venevision, Radio Caracas, Television, Globovision, and Televen, aligned wow. with nine out of the ten largest national newspapers to basically promote the strike and promote a coup against Chavez. Now, it's important to understand who controls the media or controlled the media in Venezuela at the time, just like, you know, we, we talked about earlier in the United States, um, the, the most important and widely watched television network, Venevision, was part of a media empire owned by a multi-multi-millionaire, Gustavo Cisneros. His group had also partnerships with Coca-Cola and Pizza Hut. And of course, you know, he wanted to get rid of Chavez. So uh, you've got these wealthy media companies that are encouraging the strike, wealthy oil company owners encouraging the strike. Um, And then the march that they organized, it was supposed to march to Caracas and end up at the PDVSA building. But instead, they directed it towards the presidential palace, which is known as Milaflores. Now, the... Suggestion is that they were going to try and drive the protesters to, and we're talking hundreds of thousands, maybe up to a million people, to right. storm the palace because they knew that that would force the the guard, the palace guard, um, to right. prevent, okay. yeah, to react. That's going to turn violent, and that's going to give them a justification for a coup, right. which in fact happened. So um, the mm. people stormed the palace. Um, 
shots are fired. Uh, it turns violent. One side accuses the other side of uh, firing first. Um, and sure. uh, people died. Now, rumours of a coup had been running high for two years. Do you know how you make a coup happen, Ray? No, tell me. You, you predict one every day for two years. Um, right. It's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. That's, how, that's how Rupert Murdoch um, overthrows prime ministers in Australia. He just gets his newspapers and his friends that run the television stations to start predicting uh. that a prime minister... This is how we've lost like four prime ministers in the last five years. Um, they start. Happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, rumors, oh, rumors are running high that yeah. uh, the prime minister is going to get kicked out by his own party because he won't win the next election. And everyone, and, the, and his party goes, what did what? really? Oh shit. Is that, we got to get on this. We, yeah, that's yeah. right. We got to get on. <laughs> and it inevitably happens. A couple of months later, prime minister gets knifed. Wow. Um, so the same thing happened uh, here. Now, it's a bit like the US media predicting Trump will be impeached, impeached for the last couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. Now, shortly before the coup, the general secretary of OPEC, based in Vienna, one of Chavez's old comrades, claims he heard talk of a potential oil embargo against the USA by Iraq and Libya over US support for Israel and all the mm. shit that's, you know, ramp up towards war. U.S. Bush hadn't invaded Iraq yet. That didn't happen until 2003, but there was certainly talk about it. He was, he was cracking down on Saddam and, and uh, uh, ratcheting up the rhetoric towards uh, Gaddafi as well after 9-11. Um, and then he also heard this guy uh, at OPEC that the USA was planning to prod through a coup in Venezuela to head off the embargo so Chavez quickly declared publicly that he wouldn't join an embargo right. uh, to try and prevent the U.S. from supporting ah. a coup. But on the, to be on the safe side, he heads several hundred troops in underground corridors in the palace. Um, oh, so anyway, then the, the, the march hits the palace. The Metropolitan Police of Caracas, who are directed by the mayor of Caracas, who was an mm-hmm. enemy of uh, Chavez, was in favor of the coup. The Metropolitan Police began to open fire against Chavez supporters um, oh who had gathered at the palace as well. The supporters fired back, um, ended up 17 people were killed, hundreds were injured. Now, according to some analysis of this, uh, nearly all of the people who were killed were f- killed by long-range weapons and they'd been shot from above in the sniper-like ah, fashion. Right. Snipers were never found. Um, you know how you know exactly how Free this plan. went down. It's what it looks like. Yeah. We don't know. Anyway, the shooting right. was covered by the private corporate media. They said that Hugo Chavez ordered his supporters to kill the opposition marchers when they claimed they were just defending themselves against the you know the the, the hundreds of thousands of people that are aimed at the palace and the metropolitan police uh, mm-hmm. who were who shot first. Um, the, the way the media footage uh, appeared on television, it showed or appeared to show that Chavez's supporters were shooting into a crowd of unarmed opposition. Um, so all of this is going on. How much of it was manipulated? I honestly don't know. Who, who the right. fuck knows what the truth is here? But um, we certainly know that the privately owned media were against the socialist policies of Chavez. 
And, you know, uh, yeah. I don't... That's all you need. Uh, I don't waste. believe the media in developed Western countries is unbiased, let alone the, the media in countries like this. So... Uh, after all this happens, some high-ranking military officers asked Chavez for his resignation. Mm-hmm. He refused, and then uh, early in the morning on April 12th, uh, he was arrested and put in a fort, imprisoned in a fort. Ah, jeez. So they got what they wanted. Briefly. Now, yeah. the, the, the coup was engineered by a group of military officers um, who were protégés of a retired general, Ruben Rojas, who was mm-hmm. uh, aligned with some ultra-conservative businessmen and politicians who belonged to Opus Dei. Uh, I think we've talked really? about Opus Dei before yeah. on our shows. Extremely conservative uh, right. Catholic deep state organization. Right. Uh, now, this isn't uh, lefty uh, conspiracy theory here. This is the way it was portrayed in <laughs> cables leaked by WikiLeaks that came from Stratfor, the private American geopolitical intelligence publisher who works for the Fortune 500. Um, they said that there were three main army groups that um, were involved in the goings-on. Mm. This is a quote from their um uh, uh, analysis. Right. One group is led by Army Commander General Efrain Vasquez Velasco, who emerged April 11th and 12th as the leader of a centre-right faction of career officers who opposed Chavez's attempts to politicise the FAN, the FAN, which is the Bolivian Armed Forces, and shift right. the country away from capitalist democracy. Vasquez Velasco's group negotiated the agreement with civic and political opposition leaders that installed Carmona as a consensus interim president. A second group consists of ultra-conservative officers in all four branches of the FAN. Some of these officers are longtime protégés of Rojas and others, including some Opus Dei members, hail from the Christian Democrat Copai Party, which long has been dominated by former President Rafael Cadera, who is also Rojas's father-in-law. <clears throat> Stratfor sources report this group planned to launch a coup against Chafez on February 27th, but aborted the scheme under strong pressure from centrist colleagues inside the FAN and from the Bush administration in Washington. Oh, God. The third group consists of pro-Chavez officers, including General Raul Baduel, who commands the 42nd Parachutist Brigade based at Maracay in Aragua State. This is Chavez's former unit, and Baduel is one of his closest friends and political allies in the army. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is uh, coming from Stratfor. Um, about how the groups broke down. Now, the um, guy who was appointed uh, as the interim president by the military at the time was Pedro Carmona Estanga. Now, he said that Chavez had resigned and the the media did this big show at Miraflores Palace when he announced his first decree. His first decree was to dissolve every constituted power in the country, such as the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the Attorney oh, General. He changed the name of the country back to Venezuela from the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. Um, And the decree was signed not only by him, but also of several representatives of national life like Opus Dei and the Catholic Church, political parties, the media owners and the military. Now, what's important to understand is that although the United States 
publicly said that they didn't support the coup. Uh, like today, they immediately recognized the new government. <laughs> oh my God. Even though they pretty much did away with all, all of those entities that are there to protect the rights of the people. Yeah. Then they said, okay. yeah, listen, uh, we, 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 we acknowledge the new government. We're going to work with them. Not like they, they didn't say, um, no, fuck off. Terrible uh, this yeah. is a coup. Yeah. We're not going to support it and break off all diplomatic contact like they did to the Bolsheviks <laughs> for 15 years after the Reven- Russian Revolution. <laughs> they said, no, 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 that's fine. Okay. All uh, good, son. Yeah, 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 it's all good. But yeah. unfortunately for all of them, the coup quickly fell over. Um, on April 13th, 2002, people and middle to low-ranking military took control of some military bases, later took control of Miller Palace. Then they took control of the uh, state television station uh, where they broadcast that Chavez, in fact, had not resigned and he was instead wow. being held as a prisoner at the time mm-hmm. it was at an unloaned location. Um, and then Chavez eventually was set free and returned to the palace on April 14th. The the plotters lost their nerve when uh, the people rose up and some of the low-ranking military. Now, this is the first time in the history of democracy, I think, that a president was restored to the people in less than 36 hours after a coup. Uh, Damn. Now, Chavez claimed that the US had orchestrated the coup with Venezuelan's business leaders, the Catholic Church and the media, I don't have any proof for that. But, Mm -hmm. as I said before, interestingly, the US government um, publicly said that they would work with the coup. Now, that's kind of tacit support for the coup. It kind of suggests that they probably, if they weren't pushing for it, they knew it was going to happen. In fact, we do know that they knew it was going to happen. Um, right. It came out later that the CIA knew it was going to happen, um, but decided to do nothing about it, and they didn't warn Chavez. Uh, I read one CIA statement where they said, "Hey, it's not our job to warn people of coups. Wow, we're we're here wow. to provide intelligence to our uh, White House. We're not here to warn people. Uh, not my problem, bitch." It was basically <laughs> what they said. Um, <clears throat> Now, and then they obviously support it. I mean, my guess is the conversations in the back channels were to the plotters, look, uh, if you, you know, we're not going to publicly support you, but if you do it, great. You know, we're, we're there and, and right. you support our policies. We will give you two thumbs up. Right? Yeah. Just get it done, well, I, son. I, I know we're going to wrap this up soon, but just real quick, compare that moment in history where the American government is – acknowledging the new government after the coup and what's going on now today with the new guy. I mean, it's just amazing how history repeat repeats itself. And like you said, at the beginning of this show that the American government was in talks with Guaido, if I'm saying his name, right saying, look, if you do this, you will have the full support of the United States. And at this, and it's not just these two instances. There are another couple of instances right. that have happened in between those two that I'll talk about as well. Um, Now, according to Scott Wilson from the Washington Post, the U.S. was definitely involved. Here's a a clip from uh, Scotty Boy. Mm -hmm. If I can find my notes. Yes, the United States was hosting uh, people involved in the coup. 
before it happened. Uh, there was involvement of U.S.-sponsored NGOs in training some of the people uh, that were involved in the coup. And in the immediate aftermath of the coup, uh, the United States government uh, said that it was a resignation, not a coup, uh, effectively recognizing the government that, that took office very briefly until President Chavez returned. Uh, I think that there was U.S. involvement, yes. Okay, so not mm. not just me. That's uh, Scott right. Wilson from the Washington Post. Now, the the right. U.S. government uh, did issue a statement, as he said uh, after the coup, saying that uh, Chavez had dismissed the vice president and the cabinet and resigned. All completely false. It was uh, right. Carmona, the the figurehead of the coup, that collapsed them all and obviously uh, arrested him. So the U.S. was at the very Thank least you. spreading misinformation. Right. Um, now they could say, oh, like George Bush did after WMD. Oh, we had bad intel. Yeah, but come on. <laughs> You're come fucking on. kidding. Now, better. we usually don't know how these things played out uh, for decades until, mm-hmm. you know, they're either leaked uh, by people like WikiLeaks or they come out decades later under freedom of information. But right. according to Tim Weiner's book on the history of the CIA and the Washington Post, I've got an article here from a couple of years ago in the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. We do have proof that the CIA has tried to overthrow, indirectly or directly, uh, 72 governments um, <laughs> since uh, the end of World War II. Do we like anybody? Yes, no, you like ahead. the people who you put in the place. Who we put the in people power. That you try to yeah. overthrow. <laughs> Now, most of those attempts were unsuccessful, but they have. Right. There's been seventy uh, attempts to overthrow seventy-two governments. So here's the thing: people like David Markham said to me, "Do you have any proof that the CIA was involved?" No, I don't have any proof, and I don't expect to have any proof. That's the point. What I have yeah. is the knowledge that this this is the standard modus operandi of of CIA and the U.S. government when they have countries that don't toe the line, they try and have them replaced. They they attempt regime change through a variety of methods. Like, it's not always send in the fucking army, right? You, according to John right. Perkins and EHM, um, that's uh, the last resort is when you send in the army. What you do, yeah. what, you know, what you do, uh, the process is you sit down and you basically... You know, I guess, first of all, you try and do a deal with them. Listen, just give us what we want. We'll put money in a Panamanian uh, account for you. Right. It's all going to be good. Uh, if they say no, they go, well, uh, they uh, they issue threats. Well, if you don't do that, then we're going to do this. You know, we'll cut aid. We'll cut funding. We'll won't support your vote for this in the UN. You know, they've got a bunch of negotiating tactics. Right? If they yeah. still say no... Then you start to support their political opposition, try and get them to you know, lose the next election. If that doesn't work, mm. then you invest right. in ramping up uh, tensions in the country, violence, um, and try and blame it all on the incumbent government to right. bring about a regime change. And we actually do know that the United States did do that, has been doing that in Venezuela for the last... 15 years, I'll have to get that to the next episode, but that's all on record. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll 
I'll go into that. Um, you try and destabilize the government mm-hmm. and you, you invest directly into uh, the opposition, into spreading stories about, you know, why, how they're corrupt or how they're this or how they're that. Right. Uh, when that fails, uh, that's when you actually try and destroy the economy. Um, right. You know, you, that's when you throw economic sanctions at a country. You try and destroy the economy to uh, bring about more crime and poverty, uh, knowing that people are going to be upset, people are going to start demanding that the government uh, changes their, their tactics. And also the government will have to crack down on violence and crime and corruption, which then you can right. then point the finger yes. at them and say, look at them, exactly. they're, they're violent, they're brutal. Um, yeah, although, you know, it, it, it strikes me as interesting, the disparity in the coverage right now between protests happening in Venezuela and protests mm-hmm. happening in Paris. Ah, good point. And the protests that have happened over the last few years in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been some um, violent protests, the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States. Um, government rocks up in, uh, you know, quasi-military uh, equipment. In Paris, I think there's, there's 20, 30 people dead, hundreds of hundreds injured, Ongoing mm-hmm. protests over there with the gilets jaunes, the yellow jackets for months, yellow vests, right. um, and the you know when most of the media depiction of the protests in Paris uh, is gets a little bit of a combination between yeah listen they've they've got a point um, and also just rowdy protester troublemakers right, right. you know. <laughs> I get into debates with, again, you know, friends like Markham on Facebook. He's like, oh, well, these protesters in Paris, they're scum. You know, they're scum. They should, they just, you know, should just shut up and let Macron run the country. Then you have pro- the way the media covers the protests in Venezuela is, oh, yeah, you know, Macron's a brutal, uh, not Macron, Maduro's a brutal dictator and these people right. are full support for the protesters. Um, the way the protesters, the coverage of them is very different from country to country. Yeah. Anyway, I guess that's part one of the background of Venezuela. We've gone way over time. I've got, you know, way more notes here. Um, I think we'll do a second episode sometime yes. this week, maybe next week. Um, I don't know. So we'll see how time goes and we'll get into so, sort of, well, I guess the rest of Chavez's uh, reign and then what's been happening with Maduro. But hopefully that's given people a little bit of background uh, to begin with to help process this week's news. No doubt, as I said at the beginning, it'll be very fluid this week and we'll have more to talk about uh, next time. Awesome.